Hi, this is Ad Passion and Stir. I'm Billy Shore. This is our weekly podcast about food, about passion, and about making a difference. And as usual, we've got a couple experts in all of these categories with us today here in Boston. I'm with Chris Coombs, whose restaurant Dewave I have eaten at many times and just had some of the best meals of my life. He's also got Boston Chops and D-Bar. Chris, welcome. Thanks, Billy. Thanks for having me. Uh, And Ira Jackson, who I've known for a very long time and who's been on the board of one of Share Strengths Organization's Community Wealth Partners, but has been a leader in uh, both Massachusetts and Boston and nationally in terms of his thought leadership. Uh, And what's interesting about both of you, and welcome, Ira, I'm glad you're here. Uh, What's interesting about both of you is this incredible kind of pedigree that you both bring to your work. Ira, in your case, there's probably not there's literally nobody I can think of who has the same blend of government experience, business experience, philanthropic experience, academic experience. It's pretty amazing. And we're going to talk all about that, but you're like the Renaissance man. I don't know anybody else like you. Well, I still haven't entered the federal witness protection program, but I'm delighted to be here with you and Chris. We talked to a lot of people on Ad Passion and Stir who had these kind of zigzag paths to what they were doing. It feels like with each of you, uh, you were almost like born and bred to be doing what you're doing. And when I think about, Chris, your uh, background going, first of all, I think starting at a restaurant washing dishes when you were 11, then going to the Culinary Institute and working for people like Ming Tsai and Patrick O'Connell at the end at Little Washington. Uh, it's just an incredible pedigree. Did you know from the very beginning that you this is what you wanted to do? No, not I mean not from the absolute beginning. I mean in in, in the the early days, meaning like eleven or twelve years old, washing dishes, um, it was really about money. You know, my family didn't have uh, extra. You know, we we certainly weren't. Uh, Where did you grow poor. up? Poor. I grew up in Peabody, Massachusetts, on the North Shore, and um, you know we always had food on the table. Um, and uh, you know my father always had a job. My mother always had a job. Um, but you know, it was, you know, when I was 11 or 12 years old, I started noticing, you know, kids who had Nike airs and were trading baseball cards. And, um, that wasn't a reality for my family. Um, and one of the lessons that my father, um, taught me young and it's, it still stays with me every day is if you want nice things in life, you got to work hard for them. Um, so, you know, scrubbing, uh, sizzle plates in the local, uh, fish restaurant called Ocean Delight on Lynn Street in PVD. My neighbor owned the restaurant and, uh, you know, cleaning grease traps and, scrubbing pots and pans for five bucks an hour cash. Um, you know, that pretty much supported, um, you know, those luxury items that I had to have, you know, just little things. Like I wanted a pair of three stripe Adidas, uh, sweatpants instead of the four stripe ones from, uh, you know, Payless or Marshall's or wherever they were from. So, you know, for, for me originally, it was about just having my own means. Um, and then I think I fell in love with the energy, uh, of the kitchen, the people, and then, uh, I think that was first, and then I think falling in love with the food aspect that came later on because I don't think I was like truly introduced to like beautiful food um, until much much later on. I mean, like you know, like six years of working in kitchens where you were just feeding people, but it wasn't you know, it wasn't like beautiful beautiful food. What did your so, folks do for a living? Uh, so my mother is a, uh, a preschool teacher uh, and has been for um, quite some time. Uh, and my father, uh, when I was growing up, was actually a millwright. Uh, a millwright is is generally a job that doesn't exist anymore. But my dad, um, he was the guy in the factory that knew how to fix everything. So a millwright was the guy who floated from machine to machine, press to press. And when things broke, he just knew how to fix them. Any kind of factory. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So he took... He took that job when he was 21 years old, and he worked there till he was 57 when they moved his factory to Mexico. Um, so then my dad had had one job for 37 years working in the factory, and they moved the factory to Monterey, Mexico. Um, so that was the time when um, I had three restaurants already, and uh, it was very rewarding to be able to hire my father um, with a millwright background to be the maintenance and facilities director for Boston Urban Hospitality. That's so, fabulous. So I get to see my dad every day, and um, no you know he does all story. the he does all the the maintenance on you know the HVAC and the you know I mean he 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 basically has taken his millwright skill and applied it to restaurants, which just means you know anything that breaks he knows how to fix it, and and he can teach himself how to f- fix things. So he's got a pretty special uh, mind, but more more rewarding than the work that he does is that. Um, I actually get to see my dad now, and um, you know this business is uh, not 
um, the most family-friendly business, uh, particularly as an entrepreneur. I mean, you can work every hour of every single day from the time you wake up to the time you go to sleep, and the work is never done. Um, so to be able to see my dad's really cool. That's pretty special. It's a it's really a beautiful story. Incredibly special story. Um, I have nothing. Are, I have nothing analogous well, to offer. Billy, well, except, no, but I, except no. that I do think of my uh, mom and my dad uh, frequently, and the values uh, that I benefited from, just as Chris and you and all of us have from our parents and our upbringing. And uh, my mom was passionate about civil rights, and I can remember uh, taking her to the bus uh, when she went to the march on Washington in 1963, and how proud I was of her for being a, a drum major for freedom and, uh, and, and a gutsy working woman and uh, mother and wife. I, it was an inspiration, and she, I think, instilled in me a passion for social justice. And my dad was, uh, you know, a decent uh, and, and kind man, and I, I hope I have some of those characteristics. I'm certainly reminded uh, and remind myself frequently of when I fall short of my mother's passion and my dad's kind. I think one thing I read about your mom, something, um, if it's true she has in common with my mom, uh, was that uh, she was passionate about, this sounds like ancient history, but about Adlai Stevenson yes. as, a, as a political force who my parents were very, this is in the 1950s when yeah. he was running for office, yeah, but way my, before your time, Chris. My, wait, this, is, uh, this is decades before you were born and even thought of, Chris, but uh, my first, one of my first memories is sitting on Adlai Stevenson's lap at a political rally at South Station in 1952 when he was running against uh, uh, Eisenhower for president. Uh, and my mom wore a Roosevelt uh, silver dollar or whatever it was called uh, to the day she died. Um, so she was a real a New Deal Democrat and someone who reminded us, and growing up in a, a Jewish family uh, back then, uh, there was a big emphasis on a sense of community and uh, how grateful we were for what we had and how many people were being left behind. Well, um, I want each of you to take us back um, a little bit farther. Chris, when did the light bulb for you go off that I'm going to take this experience and actually go to the Culinary Institute, which is not everybody gets to do and obviously set you on a, on a path? Yeah, I think, uh, I think generationally it was just a little different, Billy. I mean, in, in the you know mid to late 90s, um, it wasn't really cool to be a chef yet. I mean, Food Network was just really getting started. I mean, you know, we look at Food Network now, it's 25 years old. But the early programming, when you think back to what that was and, you know, overlay it with what um, rock stars, uh, chefs are now, um, you know, I used to have to make excuses in high school about why I was in cooking classes. I mean, I distinctively remember, um, and again, you know, culturally, you know, the times have changed, but, you know, kids were a lot meaner back then. And, uh, I remember being in uh home ec in middle school and then in ninth grade, you know, there were great culinary classes at PVD high school. For some reason, the vocational culinary program with pro start, um, was just really strong. And, uh, some of my friends were, you know, what, why are you, why are you in cooking classes? You know, and, um, you know, and they'd say, you know, derogatory things about, Oh, are you gay or what's your, yeah. I mean, that kids were just mean about that. And gay was like, not, as acceptable as it is now, you know, and I was like, Oh no, I just, I need to eat before football practice, you know? So I, I want to cook and eat, so I have good energy to go out on the football field. And, um, you know, but I think around 14 or 15 years old, I was just like, wow, this is the first thing, um, in my life that I feel like I'm good at and that I love it. I mean, I was generally okay at sports, but I was never like, the best one on the field, you know, I was, there was always somebody I could look at and be like, Ooh, that's the guy who's going to go to, you know, play division one. And, uh, you know, for me with food, it just felt really, it felt really natural. And, um, you know, my, my, my family didn't really know how to cook. I mean, my dad could barely boil a hot dog and my mom tried pretty hard, but she's a better cook now for me teaching her some things. But, um, you know, it, it was just, uh, I, I knew, I knew young and I knew I wanted to go all in on it. And, um, my attention span for other things in high school was, was very small. And, um, oftentimes I found myself, you know, leaving, uh, you know, math or science class early and getting a note from my culinary teacher, uh, Mr. Levin, Mike Levin, um, you know, to help him either wash dishes or help, you know, prep for his other class or, you know, I just wanted to spend my time in kitchens and then, you know, got the work release program junior and senior year to really start putting in some big hours 
And um, yeah, just spent a ton of time in kitchens and um, actually only applied to one culinary school my my uh, senior year in high school, uh, Culinary Institute of America. I figured I'm either going to go to the okay. best culinary start school. Start at the top. Or, yeah, I'm either going to go to the best culinary school at the time uh, and um, or I'm going to just work my way up through kitchens and not take on a bunch of debt. So and, and Ira, it feels like you knew pretty early as well. I mean, you're currently vice president at Brandeis University for communications and external affairs, and I want to talk about what that job's all about. But you know, I've always felt that what was most formative in your life was being chief of staff to Mayor Kevin White here in Boston during a very transformative time for the city. Uh, and I think before that, you were working with the mayor of Newark. So uh, you got into politics pretty early and got. I did indeed. In fact, I ran on an anti-war platform uh, for Brookline Town Meeting when I was still in college. Uh, and like Chris, uh, I was never going to play Division I uh, football. So uh, when I graduated from college, I went to Newark, New Jersey to teach at a community college. And I can assure you, Chris, that my peers were no more impressed with that uh, decision than right. your buddies were right. that you, you wanted to be a chef. It just wasn't hip, uh, right? But, I mean... Uh, <laughs> But back then, um, a bunch of my buddies were off in Vietnam instead, and I felt uh, a duty to service. Um, and we didn't have AmeriCorps or any formal mechanism, but I did have a medical deferment, and I, I wanted to teach in an inner-city uh, community college. And one thing led to another, and a newly elected black mayor, uh, Billy, offered me a job. I said, but Mr. Mayor, I don't know anything about city government. And he said, neither do I, Ira. We'll learn together. <laughs> and Ken Gibson gave me a great shot, and then... Kevin this was Moore. in Newark. This was Newark, New Jersey. He was the first black mayor of a major city on the East Coast, and I became his administrative assistant. And then one thing led to another. Uh, my mom was ill. I wanted to come back to Boston. I called Kevin White, uh, and who had a offered me a job, uh, and I said, I'm sure you don't remember me. And he said, no, I kept an office vacant for you, and I became his chief of staff at a very turbulent time in Boston. It's hard for anybody who lives here now to imagine what it was like back then. But after the Second World War, Boston had lost 250,000 people, almost all white. Uh, crime was high. It was a city with a glorious past and viewed as almost having no future. And what year are we talking about 1972. Now? 72, okay. And uh, then along came busing, which was uh, an enormously traumatic, violent, ugly experience uh, that I was at the middle of. And I'm no... There are no heroes in this story. Uh, we, we survived it, but it was uh, our Selma. What was it like culturally? Were people divided, angry at each other, uh, frightened? I can't use the words on the, on the podcast, Billy, to describe what it was like, but I would accompany the 37 yellow school buses along with the police commissioner every morning from Bayside up to uh, Dorchester Heights and South Boston High School where uh, those black kids would be greeted by an angry mob uh, that was yelling the N-word at them and throwing bananas at them and occasionally bricks at the window. That's how violent and ugly it was. On the eve of busing, we learned that uh, Whitey Bulger, uh, who recently was murdered in prison, not to make this too macabre, was planning to shoot and kill black children that morning, that first morning of busing in September of 1974. And luckily, uh, with the help of the FBI, we put a stop to that, but uh, the violence continued for a couple of years and a whole generation of students was lo were lost. And the notion that 44 years later, Boston would be today the kind of tolerant, inclusive, hip, young city that it is, is uh, a story of redemption. We're not perfect, but uh, Boston back then was the oldest city in America. Today, it's the youngest. Hmm. And, uh, and I live in South Boston, which was... During the first week in busing, a black cab driver was uh, pulled from his car. He was, you know, he was black driving through South Boston. He didn't, didn't have a white passenger and beaten by a mob and left to die. They thought they had killed him. Um, luckily, they didn't. But that was right in front of where I now live. So uh, Boston's come a long way. Well, uh, this is an unfair question because it's uh, the answer will be too complex uh, to to say in any uh, reasonable amount of time. But how did we get through it? How did this city change? How did what happened? Well, a lot of people, uh, I think, recognized that we were a burning platform, as they'd say in business, uh, that we were about to go under. And uh, I think it was a it is a long story. And uh, I think Kevin White's leadership 
had a lot to do with it. I think a commitment to tolerance and inclusion had a lot to do with it. I think a commitment in the role of government as a positive force for good had a lot to do with it. There were a couple of symbolic, and I want to get Chris back into the conversation and not go down memory lane, but Chris, you would be interested in this little anecdote. Uh, when I was chief of staff to Kevin White, we would look out on an abandoned, beautiful granite building called Quincy Market. It was rat infested and abandoned. And uh, luckily, I, I just happened to know a developer with some taste and class named Jim Rouse. And I introduced him to Kevin White. And the rest, as they say, is history. And Quincy Market today, largely around food and a sense of community and revitalization, attracts more visitors than Disneyland or the, or the Great Wall of China or the Eiffel Tower. And it attracted suburbanites back to Boston. And it's almost a symbolic pivot point for the revitalization and renaissance of Boston. It's an incredible story. Chris, uh, I'm curious. I'm, as I was talking, I'm sitting here thinking about my son who's in eighth grade right now and has no sense of this history of Boston. I don't know if, uh, hopefully it'll come in high school, but it just feels like a lot of people such don't. a powerful story. Yeah. I was gonna, it's curious, did you growing up have this sense of what the city had been through? No, but I think, you know, I think this is, um, this is actually the stuff that, and I'm, I'm very thankful to sit here as a millennial. This is the stuff that millennials need to hear, right? Because everyone uh, right now in, you know, 2018, almost 19, everyone's very sensitive um, about politics, about things that are going on. And um, I think if you look and, and you talk about stories in the mid-70s, right, which isn't that long ago, um, the amount of progress that we're able to make as a city and as a country in a very short amount of time, is incredible but progress only happens um, if you're committed to making it right and um, you know uh, complaining about it or whining about it um, probably didn't make any progress back in the 70s right you had to like lace up the boots and do something about it right I mean that's kind of what you that's kind of the way it was right you didn't just you didn't have your Facebook to go on and complain about to all your friends and <laughs> um, argue with people who may have slightly different political reviews right like and I think that that's that's the big lesson that I'm taking out of this right it's like what is our what is our motivation to continue to change and to continue to evolve and to continue to be better like as a city as a people right and and I mean I, I when you first started telling the story I thought we were talking about a lot further back than the mid 70s I really did yeah I did too I, I I'm, you know, I'm amazed, absolutely amazed. Ira, Quincy Market, more visitors than Disneyland. How is that? Is How can that be? 17 million visitors a year. And uh, just to sort of emphasize Chris's point and not to personalize it to me, but just the the opportunity for an individual to make a difference. So right next to Quincy Market is, I think, one of the most beautiful public monuments in America or anywhere in the world, the New England Holocaust Memorial, those six glass block towers. And that was uh, the dream of a friend of mine named Steve Ross, who was himself uh, in seven concentration camps and survived. And That's always, Mike's dad, right? Yeah, yeah. it's Mike's yeah, dad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and uh, you know, I helped him raise the $3 million to uh, construct the... Those 17 million visitors who are coming for food and conviviality and a festival marketplace at Quincy Market are also encouraged, but they don't have to pay admission, to walk along the Freedom Trail and to go through those six block glass block monuments, which remind people of not only the six million Jews who were killed by Hitler, but how universal that message is for anybody, a Vietnamese immigrant or you know a visiting farmer from Kansas. Uh, so... People do make a difference. Back then, uh, government actually attracted people like Billy Shore and uh, Micho Spring and and Barney Frank. He was my predecessor as chief of staff to Kevin White. Is that right? Yeah. Huh. So, um, but all of us can make a difference, and, and so many do. And I, I love this next generation, this new generation, Chris's generation, and even the younger generation of students at Brandeis and elsewhere who, uh, these the, even kids at in high school, the Parkland kids and what they've done around gun control is just, it's, uh, it's inspiring. Well, as you know, uh, and Chris is a good example of this, uh, restaurateurs are so engaged in community today. That's how, of course, Share Our Strength was built. And last time I saw Chris, he was actually cooking at one of our events very generously, supporting our work. Uh, you get asked to do a lot of things, I'm sure, Chris. How do you think about your community engagement, what you want to accomplish, what you have time and capacity to do? Sure. Um you know, so my uh, my company's uh, you know growing, but we're about um, we're about two hundred and sixty seven employees right now, and um, 
as we grow, you know, it makes me realize more and more that how much it's about the team and how much it's about um, imparting culture and vision um, and and letting your team, you know, share that um, with others. And uh, as we grow, you know, obviously I've, I've become uh, stretched in more directions. So I think, you know, you really need to find... Um, you really need to find what you're connected with and really focus on it. Um, cause as you said, I mean, I probably get 70 to 90, um, event requests a year. And, and my, my personal physical bandwidth is probably about 20. I can do 20 comfortably and more than that. I just get really, um, bitter and unfocused on like why I'm doing what I'm doing, you know, like instead of really being like, Hey, you know, like we're here making a difference today, like we're raising this money for such good. It's going to, you know, this is how it's going to be deployed. This is how it's going to help people. Um, so the big things that I try and focus on is, uh, family homelessness, which is, um, you know, very different than homelessness. Right. So, um, uh, you know, uh, I do a good bit of work with, uh, with heading home, um, which really focuses on, you know, the greater Boston area specifically in family homelessness, which, you know, sometimes it's, it's temporary, but just sort of teaching people to be more responsible with their planning. Right. Um, and then, uh, and then hunger. Right. And, and, you know, I mean, I do some work with like, you know, say autism speaks or, um, you know, Alzheimer's and, 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 and they're all, I mean, all these charities are, are good and, and, um, historically, you know, restaurants run on, um, razor thin margins, but it's also a really good way to, um, you know, market what you're doing to a large group of people and do good at the same time. So, you know, we, we do as much as we can and, and I'm not able to go to every event myself now, but sometimes my team will do them and, you know, we, you know, I don't, I don't have a ton of money to donate. So I try and donate my talent as much as I can. Yeah. And you're sharing uh, your strength, which is the whole yeah, idea. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, the, the fact that, you know, to be able to stand on stage and offer to cook dinner in someone's house for eight people and to be able to get, you know, $15,000 for that. That's, right. I mean, to me, that doesn't even make sense. You know, just being a kid from kid from Peabody, <laughs> I don't, I don't know, but, um, but I, I'm, 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 I'm happy to do it. And, um, I, I think what Chris is talking about, Billy is, uh, is illustrative and, and relevant for so many of us is, is aligning one's corporate or individual or institutional strengths to, uh, a passion and a need in society. So I was a banker once and uh, we had a terrible year. I uh, lost more money than I thought uh, any corporation could and still survive. And uh, when I got the invitation to the corporate annual outing, I instead suggested to my boss, the CEO, that we do a day of community service. And he said, what? And I said, yeah, I don't think we should go to an all-white uh, country club and golf. It's going to make the very few women executives very uncomfortable. And besides, we just lost $300 million. Why are we celebrating? Why don't we give back and try to become a more functional team? So uh, I called my friend, our mutual friend, Alan uh, Casey, the founder of City Year, and I said, would you help us become a productive as a team in giving back? And we did a day of community service, uh, 30 executives at Bank Boston, and it was probably the most um, joyous day in my 12 years there, and it was uh, it was quite a run, and we were functional, and we came together uh, in pursuit of a of a of a cause and a passion. We left uh, a place much better than we found it, and it became almost the epiphany for the turnaround of this company. That it doesn't really matter, but our stock was trading at that point at two and seven eighths, and when I left, it was at one eighteen, and uh, by the time I left. I hope, you left with, I hope you left with some stock. <laughs> no, not enough. But by the time I left, there were literally thousands of people around our 29 uh, country locations around the world who, are, who were participating in an equivalent day of service, sharing their strength uh, in, for a cause larger than themselves, and as a result, becoming a more purpose-driven uh, organization. I would take us through your career path a little bit. Oh. Uh, I've, I've, I've got a little list here, but you're you're sitting here, so why should I do it? You should do it, and it's, no, it's pretty no, no. stellar. No, and it's always been about public service, really, almost without well, I, exception. I, I, I like to think uh, perhaps that it has, uh, but that may be uh, too self congratulatory. But um, one thing that might be interesting to some of your listeners is uh, not my career per se, or Ira Jackson as an individual, but. The fact that I've been in the public sector, the private sector, the nonprofit sector, the academic sector might be more illustrative of the career path of your kid mm -hmm. going forward. I, I don't think, 
you know, our, this next generation is going to be staying a GE well, for a lifetime. Our, our dads were like Chris's dad. My dad was, he had one job for 35 right. years. You get a right? job and then you stay there. Yeah, that's and your that's job. not the way millennials think right. about it anymore. And then you build your pension and then hopefully one day you don't have to work when you're yeah. done doing your job, right? I mean, so uh, that's over. W- one thing that I've experienced, or at least the way I interpret uh, my experience, is that one can be highly entrepreneurial in government. Surprise, surprise. I was commissioner of revenue in Massachusetts. During the early 80s, uh, Mike Dukakis had been on the faculty at the Kennedy School of Government where I was associate dean, and he was elected governor and turned to me and asked me if I would be his commissioner of revenue. It was a very unlikely offer, at least in the eyes of my colleagues, but uh, from the governor's perspective, it was an important position because one reason he was elected was the perception of public corruption in the Department of Revenue. So he needed someone he could trust. You know, what's more functional than the tax collector? And yet, uh, this was an institution uh, 200 years old that needed reinvention. Uh, So we offered uh, a tax amnesty. This was during uh, Governor Dukakis' administration. Yes, and we offered a tax amnesty because I felt we needed to enforce tax laws very vigorously, but it wasn't fair to come back, come down on tax evaders until they had a chance to come in and clean up uh, before I went after them. And uh, lo and behold, uh, 86,000 people took advantage of tax amnesty. Uh, I thought, oh, Lord, back to Chris's point, there are, there are people out there who aren't doing so well. How do we bring taxpayer services to uh, low-income people? Uh, well, you, you take uh, the taxpayer bureau and you put it in a tax mobile and you drive it to senior citizen homes around the Commonwealth and you help people out. So, you can be innovative and entrepreneurial in government, even in the most traditional sense. You can be innovative. And then government itself, uh, uh, the private sector itself, can be very public-oriented. Uh, at Bank Boston, which I mentioned earlier, we had an obligation to meet the credit and banking needs of inner-city residents. And most every other bank in America, and there were 10,000 banks back then, viewed that as a compliance obligation. I said, why don't we view this as a business opportunity? Why don't we do the right thing and see if we can't make a buck the old-fashioned way at the same time? So we created an inner-city bank within the bank. A black woman from the community was placed in as president, uh, and she developed a 44-branch network, $5 billion in deposits. And five years later, she and I had the privilege of being at the White House to receive the Ron Brown Award for Corporate Social Responsibility. So we were doing good and doing well simultaneously. And then throughout my career, I've had... Uh, the anchor and the, and the touchstone of what Chris and you uh, have already alluded to, of doing some service, being involved in nonprofit organizations. I don't have Chris's talent. I can only go to the Pine Street Inn and serve meals. Uh, but that combination of uh, initiative, innovation, service, uh, purpose, and accountability, uh, I think you can find in almost any venue. And I've had the privilege of having maybe 12 or 13 lives and careers so far. And I, I found them all rewarding in their own unique way, but without needing to sacrifice my values at any one of them. So what was your uh, chronology, Chris, when you finished high school, you went straight to college, but at yeah. what age and when yeah, did you so finish? So the Culinary Institute of America is pretty unique. So they start uh, classes every three weeks. Um, and I just couldn't wait to get out of Peabody, Massachusetts and go to New York and start cooking. So I started right away. Um, I think I was still 17 years old. Um, and you know, it's an extensive program. It's a 22 month program where you get a couple, I think you get a week off or a week and a half off for Christmas break. And then you got a week and a half in the summer. So, um, I actually graduated, um, uh, at 19 years old. So I was out, I was out of college pretty young and, uh, still to this day, I mean, I run a pretty good sized company, but I only have an associate's degree. And then you were on your way to Virginia to work with uh, yeah. Patrick I actually O'Connell. I actually went out to um, Nantucket for okay. um, a month or two um, just because I was in a holding pattern waiting for like my dream job at the end of Little Washington. So I actually cooked at Toppers at the Wawinet, which was a five star uh, Relay Chateau property out on Nantucket. So um, I think I did that from April to July or June um, of uh, '04, and then. Um, finally got the call for my tryout for the Inlet of Washington because it was at the time uh, the Inlet of Washington was considered to be the the number like number two restaurant in the world at the time so there was quite the um it was it was rather difficult to uh gain employment there at the time thank thank god you 
took that path, Chris, because otherwise you might have ended up at Frank Jafrida's Hilltop Steakhouse Oof. or the Kowloon. <laughs> I always wanted to work at the Hilltop when yeah. I was a kid. I'll tell you, the Hilltop when I was a kid was the fanciest place around. I mean, we, we my family, we couldn't afford those Route 1 restaurants, you know. There was there was no way that was happening, but no, there was a time where if I if I had been able to make the commute from Peabody to Saugus, I would have loved to have worked at the Hilltop. You know, I worked at uh, actually when I was in high school, I worked at Sylvan Street Grill. I don't know if you've heard of Sylvan Street Grill, but Ernie Tremblay's place. So I worked there in Peabody because I could walk there, and that was pretty helpful. <laughs> um, you had a, a lot of steps on the path up. We mentioned earlier some of the great chefs and restaurateurs. Uh, you worked with two questions for you one is was was there a favorite was there an, was one of those experiences kind of more uh, meaningful and transformative than others and two is um, just because so many of our listeners are just passionate about food um, when somebody comes to Dewav or to Boston Chops or D-Bar what is it that you're trying to convey to them is there what what are you hoping they leave with I'm just cur- interested in your sense of both food and hospitality that way yeah um you know, I think the the most transformative experience in my career was, um, you know, being 19 years old and moving down to Virginia to work for Patrick, for Patrick O'Connell. O'Connell. And I, you know, and I went into that kitchen and, you know, <laughs> back to being 11 again, you know, washed dishes, polished brass, cleaned windows, cooked for dogs. Uh, actually, one of the the themes of Dean at Little Washington were um, his Dalmatians. Uh, he loved his dogs very, very much. And um, we actually all wore Dalmatian patterned chef pants and aprons um, at the time. I mean, like he really loved Dalmatians. Um, so his two dogs um, had very special human food diets. So when you were low on the totem pole and there was about 38 people in the kitchen, I think I came in at number 38. And I think by the time I left, I was probably number three, maybe four, depending on who you ask. And, um, yeah, so, uh, I made a beautiful diet of, um, boiled chicken and carrots and rice for one of the dogs. Um, and this was a daily thing of cooking, um, fresh, organic, natural human foods for the dogs. And and the goal I assume is to graduate from cooking for the dogs to, well, I mean, cooking for the the dogs was better than polishing brass and wiping windows and washing dishes. So that was a, at least you're cooking. Yeah. At least you're actually applying heat to food. And then just like everything in that restaurant, like you had to do it very well. There was a specific size that the chicken and the carrots and needed to be cut (laughs) to for the dogs to eat it. And you either did it well or you didn't. Right. And that was, that was every single task. And I think, Mm -hmm. you know, cooking for dogs, like, I mean, it, it, we, we took it very seriously, you know, and I think if there's a seriousness in life that you approach your work with, mm-hmm. right, you can apply that to all things, no matter what you're doing. Usually if you work for a mayor or a governor, you have to walk their dogs and things like that. <laughs> yeah. right? I've done some yeah. of that too. Yeah. Ira, have you ever been to the inn at Little Washington? No. It's just an iconic, it's right, right one of America's great destination yeah. restaurants. Yeah. I mean, at the time and, and the restaurant's 40 years old now, actually, um, Chef Patrick just invited me back to cook. Um, at the 40th anniversary of the Inola Washington. So that was a pretty big honor because there was about a dozen chefs through the 40-year time period that were invited back. So that was pretty special to be a part of. But, you know, moving down there away from all my family, all my friends, having no network down there, no reference, and moving into the middle of the Shenandoah Valley where there wasn't even cell phone service at the time, um, I was really able to fully immerse myself, not just in the work and the culture of the Inola Washington, but also, like, just doing a lot of reading um, and some farming and being like really in touch with the ingredients and, you know, walking the mountains to forage and really finding out about like edible plants and mushrooms. And, um, you know, I did that for just shy of two years. And that was certainly the most transformative um, time in my career. And I think I think you have to have a level of loneliness uh, in your life to really go um, all in on something like that. And I think... Uh, my career has really been defined thus it's like, far. It's like the loneliness gave you the space to go all in. Yeah. Well, not just that. It's, you know, I often, you know, a lot of people ask me, like, how many hours I work? And I always find that to be such an interesting question, right? Because it's like I start working when I wake up and I stop when I go to sleep. But it's not really work. It's just my life. Um, You're a lucky guy. Yeah. It's just what I do. I just, it's just, it's, I don't really qualify, like, you know, sometimes people are like, oh, well, you need a vacation. And it's like, well, am I like really working or is this just like what I was put on the on the planet to do? Um, and then to um, talk about your second question, which is just what um, 
what I try and provide for people, whether it's, you know, Boston Chops downtown, my newest place, which is, you know, 300 seats, huge and an amazing, um, actually an old bank building, um, or Duov. And, and the reality is, is, you know, I like to make people happy, um, sometimes to a fault. Uh, it's actually one of the things that um, I'm trying to work on personally right now is I spend a lot more time trying to make people around me and guests happy uh, rather than making myself happy. Um, and, uh, you know, that's a it's a blessing, but it's also it can be a curse simultaneously. Um, so, you know, sometimes people uh, have a tough day at work or, um, you know, they've got uh, family issues or, um, you know, they're just in a in a tough place in life. And my hope is, is that when people come into my restaurants that I can really take you away from whatever's bothering you for at least a couple hours and make you happy. Right. And, and it really comes down to the people and the culture of the restaurants. Right. It's like we're I'm not really just trying to serve people food. It's not really what it's about for me. I mean, yeah, I love food and I love making delicious food. But for me, I want to make people happy. And um, when you become a source of happiness for people in life, um, they're going to come back to you, you know. Um, so just culture wise, I mean, yeah, I, I love when people tell me that, you know, Duov is their favorite restaurant or they had one of the best meals of their life. But at the end of the day, I really care about like, how do people feel? How are you making people feel? And I think that's with, with all human interactions. I mean, just like, for example, just, uh, having a chat with you guys right now, like I feel very honored to be here and I, I feel humbled and I, I'm like learning so much just sitting here and, and today's going to be a great day. And, and, um, you know, that's, that's sort of, um, that's what we're trying to do. We just want to make people happy through food, through wine, through service, through human interaction, through community gathering. Um, and, uh, I think that's what makes restaurants special is just, we we're we're so multi-purpose when you're focused on it, you know, and this is, this is one of the reasons I really love to go to restaurants with, you know, heart and soul and, um, like places where, you know, the chef's name and, um, you know, I don't, I don't go to chain restaurants. I, I just don't, I find them really soulless. And I think they sort of miss the point of what a restaurant can and should be to a, to a community, you know, and that's eh, not to say anything about their food. Some of them have good food. Um, but I think that, um, you know, restaurants and, you know, even if, if you look at what, uh, we've done with D bar in Dorchester over the last 13 years, you know, I mean, putting, putting D bar and, the corner in Glover's corner on the corner of, you know, uh, Freeport Hancock and Dorchester Avenue 2005. I mean, it was like, wow. you know, yeah. Wow. Exactly. Right. And being, and being a place that was inclusive of everyone, you know, my business partner is gay and he's, um, he has been a tremendous leader in the LGBTQ community. In fact, he just got the human rights campaign equality award this year for all his work in the LGBT community. And, um, truth is, is that, you know, 2005, 2006, um, it was kind of a scary concept to have in Dorchester, you know, and there was a lot of political blowback. Um, there was a real lack of support and that restaurant anchored a neighborhood. It anchored a community. You know, when you, when you think about what, um, the LGBTQ community has done for Dorchester, um, it's made it, you know, perhaps, I mean, I, somebody might argue, but I think Dorchester is the most dynamic neighborhood in Boston right now. I really do. And restaurants like, have the ability to do that. Yeah. And, and when you think about, you know, coexisting and, and kind of touching on what I was talking about, but um, a lot of people don't really talk about how segregated Boston really is. You know, I mean, it's, you know, people always talk about, you know, north side, south side of Chicago. Um, but Boston's really segregated, yep. you know, uh, when you think about the North end, Chinatown, Dorchester, Roxbury and, and, um, back, back Bay, <laughs> back Bay. Right. Yeah. I mean, I live, I live in back Bay and, and there's a, there's a serious lack of, um, diversity in back Bay and Beacon Hill. I mean, you, you go down the streets, Com Ave, Marlboro, Beacon street, it no, in no way, shape or form represents the demographics of Boston. In no way, shape, or form. It's two miles from Back Bay to Grove Hall in Roxbury, and the mean annual income is ten times what it is in Grove Hall hmm. in the Back yeah. Bay. Two miles away. Ten times. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Dorchester in two thousand five uh, lacked diversity, lacked opportunity, um, both economically and socially, um, and I think it was resistant. 
um, to outsiders, right? And and when you looked at Dorchester at the time, uh, you know, if you looked at Savin Hill, that was strictly an Irish neighborhood. If you looked at Adams Village, that was strictly an Irish neighborhood. Um, if you looked at um, the rest of Dorchester down through Mattapan, um, that was strictly um, and generally African-American with um, uh, Vietnamese pockets uh, woven in to it. And um, I think that uh, once the South End started to gentrify, um, there was a class of the LGBT community that was displaced out of the South End. Um, and I think that um, the political power in Dorchester had always been uh, Boston Irish, like a lot of the other neighborhoods. Um, and there was a lot of resistance um, to that community infiltrating um, what Dorchester had always been, right? There was always that kind of um, um, segregation uh, in Dorchester. And um, when my business partner posed opening uh, a, um, a business that was uh, in a place that was previously an Irish pub uh, in many iterations for you know, 30, 40, 50 years, um, there was a lot of community blowback about um, something that was coined, um, you know, going to be a gay bar, but in worse words. Um, and, 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 uh, those, those things were even said, uh, at, in city hall, um, at that time from some state representatives who were pretty powerful, uh, in the state today. And of course, a lot of those people are, are very changed now and are, are, you know, have since apologized and now support us very, very much. But, uh, Dorchester was just a very, very, very different place. Um, and now it's the ago. new Somerville. Right. And now and now, you know, there's all these huge developers going in there and putting in, you know, luxury condos and million dollar condos. It just you you could pick up the price that uh, some of my network was paying for for triple deckers um, back 2004, 2005. I mean, um, you know, I think my business partner bought a, a four or five bedroom on Grampian Way. Um, back in, uh, I want to say 99 or 2000, I think he paid $150,000 for it. You know, I mean that you could, you could pick up whole buildings at that time for a hundred or $200,000. And, and now those buildings are, you know, three half a million dollar condos. So, you know, I mean, not to, there's, and again, change, change takes time. But I think the point that I was sort of getting back to here is, um, there's a diversity, um, that's happening in Dorchester, um, that isn't really as represented in other neighborhoods in yeah. Boston. It just yeah. isn't. Yeah. And if you think about what the Vietnamese community's done down there, um, and the LGBT community, um, and there's this, there's this melting pot, you know, um, you know, the Cape Verdean, uh, Cape Verdean, pardon me, uh, community. Um, there's a lot of really good people down there who really care about their neighborhood. Um, and it's a melting pot and, um, I don't know. I think it's beautiful. Well, it's got to well, feel great to have had something to do with that. Well, you know, I mean, my grandfather grew up on uh, my grandfather grew up on Dudley Street, and um, I bought my first condo in Dorchester on Church Street, which was predominantly a Cape Verdean neighborhood um, in 2006 because I believed in that neighborhood and I knew like Dorchester was next because I mean the I, I don't know Dorchester is pretty a pretty special place, and um, I remember my my grandfather's since passed, but. Um, you know, he, you know, he instructed me and by the way, when he lived on Dudley street, it was pear orchards, which is, um, really, really interesting. Um, but you know, he said that, and he didn't have much, but he said that he would give me $5,000 to buy a house or condo anywhere except Dorchester, you know, and that I had no knowledge of the area of Dorchester, um, that I was going to, but when he was a kid, like he couldn't go there and I probably shouldn't either. And, and, and this is, you know, I mean, this is a very limited exposure compared to what, um, Ira's talking about, but. No, it's a beautiful story. And it, uh, listening to Chris, Billy reminds me of a couple of books you've written, the cathedral within and uh, the imagination of unreasonable men and women, and just the passion, the courage, the loneliness, uh, the determination uh, and the beauty of, of Chris's story. Uh, you know, your listeners, myself, uh, others would be, uh, I think we should be inspired by what he's done uh, in, in a small way, just to illustrate again, the point you were making about how you can do this in different venues. In an earlier incarnation, when I was a banker, we started, I, I put $2 million into the renovation of a drug infested beautiful building that was on the National Register of Historic Buildings, but was uh, trashed 
uh, called uh, the Lithgow Building, which now anchors Codman Square in this neighborhood that uh, Chris is talking about. And it was just, it was a lot of hard work. Uh, It was against the odds. I could have lost my job if the loan went bad, but uh, the community came together and working with others, uh, it's now a great success. And how's the building being used now? Oh, as a bank, as a community center, as probably uh, two uh, two expensive art apartments, but uh, I haven't followed. This is now 25 years ago, but uh, what goes around comes around. So um, Ira, Chris was talking about uh, making people happy. Uh, the outcomes of a lot of things you've done have done that, but uh, did you ever think of uh, being revenue commissioner as <laughs> making people happy? <laughs> well, uh, no, and again, back to Chris's, uh, you know, being stigmatized when he was 11, uh, for wanting to be a chef. Uh, I, I Back then, uh, I was an associate dean at Harvard, a very young associate dean at a very prestigious institution, and I had a great job and wonderful colleagues, and I went to them and I said, hey, Mike Dukakis, the newly elected governor, has just offered me the opportunity to clean up a corrupt and antiquated uh, state uh, revenue department. Should I take it? And to a person, without embarrassing any of my colleagues who I have so much respect for, they said, no, sure. you'll never be heard from again. It's a horrible job. It's like running a factory. And I said, well, you know, I've always wanted to see whether I could make the trains run on time. And actually, it was the most satisfying job yeah. I've ever had. I had 4,000 employees who were demoralized and didn't know why they were doing what they were doing. Uh, 12 tax examiners had been indicted. Uh, the deputy commissioner before me was uh, committed suicide while on uh, the verge of, a, of an indictment and an investigation by the attorney general. So morale was low, and uh, I helped to restore a sense of purpose and pride. And, you know, uh, by protecting uh, honest taxpayers and giving them decent service and going after tax evaders, it actually was quite rewarding. Um, and without being self-righteous about it, uh, you know, we were able to help the governor balance the budget and adequately fund state services without raising uh, taxes. And we were able to uh, even cut taxes on poor people. So it was, it was the most satisfying experience of my life, but it was lonely. Uh, it was hard. As Chris said, uh, you know, he's, his, he's in the business of happiness, uh, making his customers feel great. And I had 5 million customers in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Uh, but, you know, uh, Chris has to worry about his happiness. And there, there were a lot of lonely days being commissioner of revenue and responsible for all of that and including uh, taking responsibility for the mistakes. But I'll tell one quick anecdote and I'm going on too long, uh, Billy, but there were um, back then, your listeners will not believe that in 1983, uh, when I became commissioner of revenue, all of the tax forms and tax returns in the Commonwealth were sorted in a by 650 women, all women employees in something called the George Orwell room. That, that, that's what the 650 women who worked in that room called it. So it, it, it didn't have a sign saying the George Orwell room, but that's what it, And uh, we all lived and worked in the Saltonstall State Office Building, which we came to affectionately refer to as the SOB. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was pretty primordial. And, um, I, and all on paper. All on right? paper. You know, they, they take the staples off and put them, uh, different attachments into different buckets. And I... Uh, I was there the first day on the job and I heard the bell go off and I asked the deputy commissioner, why is the bell going off? And uh, she told me that that's when the women could urinate. And I said, excuse me? So the next day I came back to the department, uh, to the George Orwell room and I presented the deputy with the Nobel Prize. I had taken the bells off the wall and put them on uh, a, a nice board and declared that anyone could go to the bathroom whenever they liked. The and no, I love the Nobel Prize. <laughs> the Nobel Prize. <laughs> and we put carpets in, and uh, everyone had a computer terminal, but they weren't allowed to put any personal effects. And I said, you can, you can have your boyfriend's picture, you can have a professional wrestler, whatever you want to do to make you happy. But more importantly, I asked, why are you doing what you're doing? Well, most of us would do a refund. So that they were calculating to see whether those tax returns were accurate. And uh, no one had ever been, had told them why they were doing what they were doing or whether they were doing it well. So that year I sent out tax forms to 5 million households. And I said, if, if you file an error-free return uh, on time, you'll get a refund back in a month's time or less, signed Ira A. Jackson, Commissioner of Revenue. I then asked the deputy, how long was it taking us to issue refunds, and she said four and a half months. It's uh, and that that was deliberate. Well, that first year, these six hundred fifty women got refunds back to taxpayers 
in 11 days on average. And Governor Dukakis and I shared a 3,000-pound cake uh, <laughs> and served it to uh, the 650 members of what I called the serve team, the speedy, efficient, refunds very early team, and made them feel like what they were, which is heroes. Incredible. Well, you've answered uh, what was going to be my next question, which is what was your favorite job of these? Does that mean government was also your favorite uh, sector because you've been in academia, philanthropy, uh, business, government? I, I think it takes all these sectors. I think it takes all of us uh, uh, to, to make this world a, a better place and government needs to be more efficient and business needs to be more socially responsible and nonprofits need to uh, uh, be both. Uh, so I, I wouldn't, it, it's this unique combination. It's what makes, you know, de Tocqueville, this uh, French philosopher and journalist came to America in the 1820s because he was racking his brains. What makes America so different? You know, is it capitalism? Is it, is it democracy? And, uh, no, he, he concluded that it was it was all of these things, and it was this sense of purpose and volunteerism and engagement in community. And he said, uh, America's a great country because Americans are good people. I think we have to return to that civility and that goodness in all of our sectors. Uh, the two of you have such kind of different career paths, but one thing I think you have in common, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Chris, you involved in some uh, rooftop uh, agriculture and yeah, produce development, yeah. and doesn't Brandeis uh, also yeah, we do have some a Urban Farm Institute? Tell us tell well, us about both of them. You go, Chris. Uh, so when I, um, when I first uh, landed at D-Bar, I really missed having my garden from Virginia, and, uh, you know... Uh, there was a bit of a ground-level rodent problem in Dorchester at that time, so you really couldn't you really couldn't grow anything edible, or the rodents would eat it. Um, so I decided to haul up. Uh, I don't even remember how yards how many yards it was a lot, a <laughs> uh, bunch of dirt up to the roof. Um, you know, figured out where the structural beams were, ran a bunch of old recycled. Um, fish uh, delivery totes, broken down fish delivery totes, reinforced them, um, and started what was at the time uh, one of the first uh, rooftop gardens in the country. Uh, in fact, um, MSN.com, which I don't even know if that still exists anymore or not, it does. but um, they did a big story on uh, rogue rooftop uh, chef uh, farmers, and it was me and Chris Constantino and I think Rick Bayless, and this was either 2005 or six or uh, something like that. And um, we were at the time, uh, you know, in August and September, we were probably about 70 to 80% uh, produce sustainable off of the rooftop, which posed another issue when we started getting all this attention in the Boston Globe and nationally, which was um, the inspectional services department had to have <laughs> something to say about it. So what was interesting is, you know, uh, Mayor Menino came down and inspectional services and we went up on the roof and we took pictures and um, and then it was time to build the guidelines and the bylaws for safe uh, rooftop um, agriculture, which, by the way, it's not like I ever went and got a structural engineer to see if I could put, right. you know, a couple thousand pounds <laughs> of dirt on the roof. I didn't, you know, and and, and this is what I worked that's with. Because you're an entrepreneur. And then, right, right. And then, you know, we worked through, you know, the height of safety railings and how far from the edge it needs to be and egresses. And, and then eventually those standards were uh, held against me. So we had to move the garden to a different roof that was a little more safe and uh what, what do you grow but, but um no uh well i mean we grow i mean we grow uh probably about 20 or 30 different types of herbs tomatoes cucumbers squash um i've grown corn on the roof corn was a really big success to get corn to like pollinating corn is actually kind of uh like wind driven and um yeah we, we've had we had a good corn season a few years ago um, I mean, we've grown the only thing that doesn't really work on a rooftop. I mean, unless you've, unless you're like doing it green city grower style, which you just kind of put down like all sorts of like mulch and, you know, that rubber mulch and just, you know, have really good soil depth is, um, like watermelon and, and squash that have long vines are tough because if it's, if it's 90 degrees on the ground, you're black up on your black rubber roof, it's 105. Um, so some of the vines tend to burn up kind of fast. Um, but we, you know, we, we were, you know, we provide produce like really, really high quality produce for, um, all the restaurants. I mean, we're not 70% sustainable anymore cause we're, 
I mean, we're 10 times you're, the you're size. Yeah. Well, our company's yeah. 10 times right. the size. It, well, right. actually 15 times the size it was in uh, 2006. But. Just think, so. Billy, of all the innovations <laughs> and pioneering things Chris has done at such a young age. Incredible. What's in front of him? We've been emulating you, Chris. Uh, we've got uh, on our science this is at center at Brandeis, we've got an urban rooftop garden, organic. Kids are deeply committed to it. We're sharing the produce uh, not only with one another but with the community. Um, through our community service activities. And one of our graduates, uh, a, name, a woman named uh, Patty Spence, class of 80, has started the Urban Farming Institute nice. um, and uh, operates seven urban farms in Boston and is bringing inner city kids uh, to a, an appreciation for the land and nature and, and growing. And uh, it's, it's a beautiful phenomenon. Oh, I, think, I, th I think that's awesome. And I, I remember some of the early days of... Um, you know, learning what worked and what didn't. And, and, you know, I didn't have an agricultural degree. I didn't, you know, my experience to farming was just from living in Virginia, but this area in Virginia, it's like if you threw a seed at the ground and a grass pot, I mean, you would have a six or seven foot tomato plant by the end of the summer. I mean, everything grew down there, no problem. But, um, you know, just learning about like testing soil and, um, you know, when you're doing container gardening on a rooftop about, you know, runoff and, and, you know, reinforcing nitrogen. And, um, you know, there were a lot of things that I really had to teach myself to yield, um, good product. And, you know, there were, there were things that went really well, like our first pea season. I was like, wow, I got, you know, I got so many English peas. How wonderful is this? And, um, and then there were things that first year that just like totally didn't work and maybe would never work, whether it was soil depth or spacing or, um, you know, lack of shade. Right. I mean, cause it, when you're, when you're rooftop farming, I mean, the one thing that you don't have, unless you're really committed to spending some money on it. And I was doing this on a shoestring budget, um, is you just really don't have shade. Right. So just exposed. And creating shades actually kind of expensive, right? So, um, you know, I, I don't know, it all, it all worked out and we've, we've had, uh, we've had about a dozen seasons now of growing stuff on. on the so roof. it seems to me, Billy, that one of the lessons, there's so many lessons to take away from Chris's inspiring story is that he, here's a social entrepreneur with a conscience and he's plenty of talent waiting until he wins that top chef, uh, award, uh, you know, th he'll have, uh, the world lined up outside his door, but he's applying the same kind of analysis, insights, discipline that you would in business. Yes. Uh, he, he's an entrepreneur, and he, he's an entrepreneur with a social conscience, uh, and the same skills that someone needs to start a business in Kendall Square, uh, Chris is demonstrating every day in his businesses, but it's also with a purpose. That happened by accident, though. I got to tell you, I never... My my goal in becoming a chef was, geez, I just want to be able to make as much money as my dad, you know. And, and I think my dad was, you know, most of my childhood made, you know, forty forty thousand dollars a year. And I had two sisters, so we were a family of five, forty fifty grand a year. You know, he'd work some weekends, make some extra side money, and uh, you know, he'd always strip wires for the copper inside it because you know sometimes he'd do side jobs and there'd be copper and we'd strip copper and then you know take it to Chelsea and get a couple bucks here and there. But you know, he was always hustling to do. Um, everything he could, but the becoming a a, a restaurant owner, um, that was never. I mean, I didn't think that was. Po I mean, you, when you don't have money or resources, things like that are impossible. Um, and you know, my business partner and I, we timed the business in Dorchester like really well, categorically, um, and um, you know, made some money. And ironically enough, people always say like, how. How did you, you know, because I became an executive chef at 22 years old, which is way too young to be an executive chef. I would never, I, I just, you know, unless you've got 10, 20,000 hours in the kitchen, you're just not ready um, at that age, but it's all I'd ever done. So it, it worked out. But um, the first, uh, we signed the lease for Duave in the back bay, which that space on the corner common mass had been empty for years. It had been a bunch of failed businesses. I mean, a bunch. And, um, we signed it in the recession in 09, um, got a pretty healthy deal on it, but, um, I actually applied for, um, an SBA loan. Um, so I actually got Obama funds to open my first business and I might be the only chef that I know that got that, but it's probably cause I'm the only chef I know who applied for it. Right. And at the time, I knew what my dream restaurant was in Duav. I knew I knew exactly what it was going to be. I knew exactly how it was going to feel. Um, but I also knew that I had like no chance resources wise to do it. I mean, I had I had a condo in Dorchester that 
Um, you know, I'm one of the examples of subprime mortgages actually working out. So I bought a condo with a friend in Dorchester. Um, I had $3,000 to my name. Um, but there was this really kind mortgage broker, his dad who wrote, Oh, you're an executive chef. That means you make $85,000 a year. I didn't even income verified by a $300,000 condo. I was making $37,000 a year. Um, but I did what like anyone else with half a brain would do is I got a bunch of roommates and made them pay me rent. Right. Um, so that's, that's what we did. Um, and then, um, I watched that $300,000 house, um, the unit above me, um, in 08 went to short sale for $118,000. So I sat there in 08 saying, Hey, you know, I'm $180,000 in the hole on this property that I don't plan to sell, but it's something that I can put up to say that I own, um, and apply for an SBA loan. And that's, uh, that's what my business partner and I did. And, um, yeah, we got, we got some of that Obama stimulus money and we've, you know, we're in our eighth year now, but you know, just, it was never, I never thought there was a path, you know, it's amazing. Like culinary schools now they have like, uh, entrepreneurship classes. It just wasn't a thing. It was, I mean, I graduated college in, uh, 2004, uh, April, 2004. And I, it just, it was never like, people didn't really talk about owning restaurants unless their family had money and, or their yeah. family owned restaurants. Um, so me, that for me, that really wasn't like, that wasn't the path that I necessarily thought would occur. Um, but I think I just started to form such like rigid ideas and theories about like business and food and life and that that was the only path. So my hopes and aspirations for Duov at that time were, um, you know, being a chef's a lot like being an artist and, um, you know, an artist without a, an easel, um, really just has a bucket of paint and a brush, you know? Um, and you know, I needed a, um, a more refined environment to really express myself through food and to really share my passion, um, with guests who would truly appreciate it. Um, and at the time, um, Dorchester really wasn't the stage for, um, that refined cuisine. And I knew that back Bay was going to be the correct home for it. So I, I feel like you have something to say about the role of government here. <laughs> well, yeah, government and, and, and partnerships. Uh, I, I think part of the moral of the story is we can't do this uh, on our own and uh, government shouldn't do it for us. Um, so we, we need public private uh, partnerships and collaboration. And, and uh, I think we're just getting started, uh, but we need to return to believing uh, and Chris's story and, and yours, Billy, as well, are just so in inspiring. And uh, it's driven by conviction, but also trust. And in our society these days, we, we trust almost no one and no institutions. So how are we going to rebuild this, uh, especially after the carnage in Washington these days and how raw and ugly our politics and our, and our public discourse has become? But uh, I, I, I hope, and, and you've got more experience in this than I do, Billy, uh, you know, deep experience with Gary Hart. Uh, I, I was with Dukakis, you were with Hart. Um, but, you know, w will we come back? Um, and how will we come back? Because there's so much cynicism. Yeah, and I think it has distrust. to, I mean, what's interesting about both your career and Chris's uh, in some ways different than mine is, and I think better for this, suited for this time is, I think you have to rebuild it locally. I think people have to be able to see and touch and feel the impact they're having because they don't trust somebody far away. Um, we're, we're running out of time, but I want to just hear quickly, Ira, about what you're doing at Brandeis now, because we haven't really touched on that. Well, I'm, I'm part of a terrific institution that's been around for 70 years. Brandeis was started by the American Jewish community back in 1948, Billy, the same year that the state of Israel was founded at a time when Jews were discriminated against at places like Harvard and Stanford. Uh, and, uh, Brandeis was created to be welcoming not only to Jews, but to everyone, to blacks and women. That was a radical idea back in 1948. So uh, first four faculty members were Leonard Bernstein, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, Herbert Marcuse, and Abe Maslow. It, it was a courageous, audacious institution. And 70 years later, we're still very good. We attract terrific uh, students, students with a conscience as well as a serious uh, inclination to scholarship and a fabulous faculty. A couple of our faculty just won Nobel Prizes last year. But we need to uh, adjust and reinvent and, and acclimate ourselves to a, a new purpose or, or a refined and renewed sense of purpose 70 years later. And we're finding our way under a new president, uh, Ron Leibowitz. Uh, but we're going strong 
And uh, we're returning to our founding values of uh, intellectual excellence, critical thinking, and what in Hebrew, but it's not exclusive to Jews, is called tikkun olam, uh, to repairing the to breach. Repair the world. Yeah. To repair the breach. Yeah. And, you know, Muslim students, uh, Catholic students, Protestants, uh, 22% of our student population are, are non-U.S. We're very diverse. Uh, it's a very welcoming environment, but it's also uh, rare for a college or a university. It's a purpose-driven environment in which... Uh, students are able to uh, make a difference and to explore without boundaries, both vertically and horizontally. So it's a complicated equation, but it's keeping me busy. And, and it sounds like it's a very rewarding place to sounds be. Like Indeed. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Uh, okay, I've saved the toughest question for last. Um, and I'll um, let you go first, Chris. Uh, it has to do with if you had to pick a restaurant that we all should know about, but it can't be one of your own, some little hidden gem, something you think our listeners ought to, ought to try and know about. I know it's hard, particularly as a chef, to pick among uh, others um, and to show favorites, but what do you think we ought to know about in this community? I mean, anytime someone poses me this this question, I, I always ask them to narrow the search parameters a little bit, right? Because we've got about 3,300-ish restaurants in the state of Massachusetts uh, right now. So that's a, <laughs> that's lot a lot. To, it's a lot to choose from. Um, I personally uh, really enjoy um, a restaurant in the South End called Bar Mazana. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. The Excellent. chef, uh, Colin Lynch, yep. um, you know, I have a lot of respect for him. He... Uh, he worked for Barbara Lynch, not no relation for uh, the better part of a decade. And although he'll never say it, he is um, responsible for a lot of the successes of Number Nine Park and the growth of the Grupo. Um, not to take anything away from Barbara, she's wonderful. Um, but he really made it happen for a long time for that group. He trained a lot of great chefs. Um, he worked with a lot of great people. And, um, you know, he just got his own restaurant. Uh, I would say about two, two and a half years ago. Um, and the consistency that he puts out of that kitchen is stunning. Um, the food's really beautiful. And I believe he just opened his second location across the street in the Troy building. And it's a tiki concept. I haven't been there yet, but um, I think that um, there's a lot of really talented, really talented chefs in the city. Um, there really are. I'm and, glad you uh, picked that one. That's a good yeah, no, one. I mean, it, it just, you know, I, I really admire hard work. Um, and, uh, he's worked very, very hard and, well, and he deserves all the, all the good things coming his way. He well, really does. Next week at this time, uh, Colin Lynch is going to be sitting where you're sitting. We're going to have him on Ann Passion and Stir. Love we've it. already got it. Really? Already, it was already, already set yeah, up? Yeah, no, we've already got it I set up. So I, did, I swear I didn't know that ahead of time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I really so, you didn't. know, just great coincidence. Ira, what's your go-to restaurant? Uh, well, I like Mall's Diner in South Boston. Mall's Diner. Yeah. I okay. I don't know it. Do you know it? Right on Broadway. It's nothing fancy. Uh, but you'll find a great cross-section of the city. Uh, you'll see cops, uh, you'll see uh, bankers, you'll see millennials, uh, and you'll find people like me just enjoying uh, corned beef hash and uh, poached eggs with uh, fabulous service from uh, waitresses and, and waiters who just uh, come from the neighborhood and are trying to keep things real. Yeah. Well, I want to thank both of you so much for being part of Add Passion and Stir and just for the work you're doing. Uh, Chris and Ira have both supported Share Our Strength in so many different ways. Ira is a board member of our subsidiary, Community Wealth Partners. Uh, Chris, just virtually every time we've asked you to do something. So uh, it's just really a treat to have you on. Thanks, Chris. And thanks, Ira. Um, and thanks to all of our listeners to Add Passion and Stir. Please go to addpassionandstir.com if you want to hear previous episodes. Um, and you can rate us, you can review us, you can subscribe, you can let your friends know about it. Um, thanks to Cybersound Studios here in Boston, where we've recorded today, to our producer, Paul Woodle, and better known as Woody, um, my sister, Debbie Shore, who's always part of this podcast, and Kelly Griffin and our whole team at uh, Share Our Strength. I'm Billy Shore. This is Add Passion and Stir. <laughs>